0: It's 17 minutes to uh, three o'clock and let's get straight into it with Dr. Chris Smith, our Naked Scientist. It's Monday and that means you have a whole host of questions to answer, Chris.
1: Well, I'm ready and waiting. I'm all revved up and uh, it's been an exciting week since the last time, hasn't it? We've got headlines now of another vaccine. We had one last week. Now we've got another vaccine in the offing for for COVID. Soon you're going to have a choice.
0: Yes, Donald Trump wasn't so wrong after all. (laughs) Let's go to Linda in Pretoria. Hi, Linda. Um,
2: I'd like to ask the Naked Scientist, when you pour yourself a glass of Coca-Cola or any fizzy fizzy drink and you add see-through ice, everything is fine. But why, when you add cloudy ice, does all the gas overflow and come out?
1: (laughs) Hi, Linda. I haven't done the experiment myself, but I'm prepared to believe it happens. First of all, what's the gas? The gas is CO2, carbon dioxide, which has been forced into the drink under pressure. And if you raise the pressure, you can force the gas to dissolve, which it does, and you'll get more to dissolve than it would do at lower pressure. So there's lots of gas which is stored in the liquid and it wants an opportunity to come out. So why does it come out? Well, it comes out when it's given a surface on which it can form a bubble. Because believe it or not, it's actually quite hard for bubbles to form in a liquid because liquids are very sticky. And for the bubble, when it's very tiny, the forces to drive the water molecules apart to form a bubble in the first place are really very high. So therefore, to form a bubble, you need some kind of rough surface or imperfection. And that's why when you pour yourself a glass of fizzy drink, the bubbles emerge in a stream from one or several places, but always the same set of places on the glass or cup surface, because that's where there's a rough patch, and it's rough enough that it acts as a nucleation site. It makes it easier for the water molecules to be forced apart and for a bubble to form in that place. So... If you pour sugar into your drink, not that there's not already tonnes of sugar in most of these fizzy drinks, but the sugar makes the froth go fizz because it's lots of rough surfaces for bubbles to form. Similarly, if you chuck ice into your drink and the ice has lots of rough surfaces, there's more surfaces for bubbles to form. Lots of bubbles forming all at once makes lots of fizz all at once, which takes up a lot of space, and it makes it froth over. If you've got clearer ice, ice that's clear has a smoother surface. The reason it's clear is because it doesn't have bubbles and imperfections trapped in the ice crystals. The usual reason they're there is because uh, hard water or water with dissolved gas in it has been used to make the ice cubes, and as the ice cubes form, the dissolved gas causes imperfections in the ice crystals because it makes a bubble the bubble surface is rough where the where the bubble was in the ice so you get that nucleation surface if you've got a nice smooth ice cube which was made Mm. from boiled water or softened water which doesn't have loads of stuff dissolved in it then you've got fewer surface area points for the bubbles to form and it doesn't froth up quite as much
0: wow brilliant question linda thank you great observation tammy you're calling us from alberton hi Hi, Mister How are you? I'm good. Welcome, Tommy. Yeah,
2: yeah, I'm right. Sister, I just want to ask the naked scientist. You know, I've been feeding through the tube. Uh, what happened shortly? 2010, I was poisoned, and then my foot, my throat, like was damaged. And then I was operated now several times by uh, by the hospital. They were they removed the part that was damaged, and they were trying to pull up my stomach. Unfortunately. After stage, I it to develop some strictures, and I can't sound I have to go back. They were pulling about six times. So they end up saying, no, they can't pull up my stomach because otherwise I will end without you no know, power where the food can mm. can can store, like when I'm feeding the tube. Mm. So I just want to ask if there is anything scientific that can be done to try to make me able to eat food with the mouth again, you know. I just want to understand that. Because you're
0: currently eating through or feeding through the tube? Yes. Okay. You,
2: the other thing that is making me not able to re- let this issue rest, like the professor who was in charge of the doctor, he said something at last minute like, Sleep of his tongue. He say no. There's another procedure they can do. Oh, I they can see. But it's expensive for the state to use such money for one patient.
0: Then, mm, because it was, was a government hospital. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yes.
2: So that's the end of
1: story. Yeah.
0: Mm. Um, So is it possible for him to feed through the mouth again?
1: It sounds like what's happened is that whatever this poisoning or other event was, it caused initially what we call stricturing of the food pipe, the esophagus. And when Mm -hmm. you have a stricture, what's happened is that when something becomes very severely inflamed and damaged, it heals with scarring. And if you imagine the difference between soft tissue and scar tissue, scar tissue is much more fibrous and firm. And this means that when you put a food bolus, in other words, something that's been in your mouth that you then swallow down the pipe, normally the esophagus is a a muscular tube that propels food ahead of it and relaxes ahead of where the food is so that the food can move forward and squeezes behind it. And in that way, it pushes the food or drink down from where your mouth is into your stomach and that's an active process believe it or not when everything's working properly you can swallow upside down you can do a handstand take a mouthful of water and swallow and that muscular action will push the water all the way up your esophagus and into your stomach and that's the same reason that astronauts are able to despite being in microgravity and in free fall on the international space station eat and drink without too many problems now what could have happened here is that the injury to the esophagus has caused this scar tissue the scar tissue takes up uh, a lot more space and is not elastic and can't stretch open like the normal tissue that's the stricture Mm. so when the food tries to go down it can't push past it it sounds like that was removed and the stomach was moved up a bit to bypass the broken or injured or scarred bit of the esophagus but there are limits to how much of that you can do before you begin to impact on the anatomy or impact Mm. on the ability of your your stomach to actually hold anything as well. So it, it basically transfers the problem from one place to another. It's possible to graft bits of intestine in to replace a missing piece of esophagus, but they're very specialist operations. And I'm not very familiar with their success rates. So I'm pleased to hear that you can maintain some nutritional input with a tube because that's much better than not being able to eat at all and having to use other routes to get the calories in. But I appreciate it must be awful for you. And all I can offer to do is to have a think about it and see if I can come up with some other ideas for next week. But if the doctors looking after you have said that it comes down to the fact that it's going to be anatomically very, very difficult because of the surgeries you've had to make this any better, sometimes the pill Mm -hmm. can be worse than the ill. And if you intervene, these are very high risk operations sometimes they can actually leave you with more problems than they solve so it's not a given that you have surgery and you get better so i'll have a think about it and if anyone listening to this is an upper gi surgeon and can and can offer me some some advice to to give out as well please do share that share your knowledge with me i'll be very grateful
0: Right. Tami, there you go. Thank you for your call. Thank you. Sir. Thank you and all of the best. Uh, that's Tami in Alberton. Joe, you're in Kelani and you have a question about COVID-19. Hi, Joe. Uh,
2: hello, Ezenia. Uh, hello, uh, Dr. Smith. I want to ask you with regard to uh, uh, ordinary coronavirus infections, does immunity to them confer immunity to the COVID-19? And also, can have these viruses be used as a vaccine against COVID-19.
1: Joe, we don't know at the moment. And just to clarify for people who didn't quite catch the the nuances of this question, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is a different member of the coronavirus family than a handful of other coronaviruses that circulate all the time among humans and they cause colds. And every winter, we have a chance that we're going to pick one of them up. And normally, they produce trivial infections. So could meeting one of those coronaviruses provoke an immune response so that you're protected against the new COVID-19 coronavirus? They are distinct viruses. They look different to the immune system. They work, most of them, in subtly different ways. And therefore, I think it's not a given that if you had encountered one of these natural human circulating coronaviruses, you would be immune to COVID. But no one's actually done the experiment at the moment where they've taken a person who's had one of those viruses and tests positive for antibodies to them and expose that person to the new coronavirus. So we don't know for sure whether there is a degree of transfer of immunity On the other hand, it might be that having recently encountered one of the other coronaviruses, you might have a worse reaction to COVID-19's virus because there is a phenomenon Mm. where if you have antibodies against other viruses that are similar, then sometimes those antibodies can actually paradoxically intensify the infection with a related virus. This is called antibody-dependent enhancement. We don't know whether that's going to be the case with this new coronavirus or not at the moment. So very good question. I wish I had a straightforward answer for you. Uh, at the moment, I don't.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Mveli is at Southgate. Hello, Mveli. Hello, how are you? Good on you? All right. So I wanted to ask Dr. Uh,
2: Smith a question. I don't know if it's a the Neet or uh, the science behind it. Is it true that uh, cats, meow, can smell uh, like a poison?
1: I didn't catch the last <laughs> bit of the question. Is it, is it cats do what?
0: Is it true that cats, meow, <laughs> can smell poison? <laughs> Can smell whether or not they can smell poison
1: well a- animals like cats but also dogs have exquisitely sensitive senses of smell and do- dogs better than cats but cats do devote a very significant proportion of their brain to what goes up their nose to smelling and so yes many animals are exquisitely sensitive to the smells that go along with things that are bad for them and sometimes they expose they're exposed to something that then makes them feel ill And they very quickly learn to associate that smell with feeling ill. So yes, they can certainly smell out things that are associated with things that are bad for them. And they have some innate awareness of what's not good uh, and what they should avoid as well. So some of it's learned, some of it's innate. But yes, it's certainly true that not just cats and dogs, but animals across the animal kingdom have very good senses of smell and they use the chemistry of the smell as a marker of what they should or shouldn't or ought not to go and eat because it could be bad for them.
0: So should we worry about what they end up eating? Or would um, they, they have that innate knowledge, you know? Most of the our time... Dog ...that he, she shouldn't have chocolate, so...
1: Yeah, well, we, we do have to exert some control because the problem is that chocolate contains a hidden poison, doesn't it? In the form that the mm-hmm. theobromine, which we eat, we find it stimulating, we like chocolate because it contains things like theobromine, we're quite good at breaking it down. So a, a rats and mice, for example. But if you fed it to a dog... Dogs don't have the right metabolic pathways to degrade theobromine in the same way we can. So, the mm. amount of it that's in a, a simple small chocolate bar is actually a toxic dose for a dog. And dogs won't necessarily know that that's bad because they won't learn that they eat this and they immediately feel unwell. They're, they're not clever enough to make the association, so we have to do it for them. But in the natural world, human-made poisons aside, most dogs and um, most cats are pretty good at telling what is good and what is bad and what they should and shouldn't eat.
0: Got you. Mveli, thank you for that question. Um, and then Jody, you're in Hyde Park. Good afternoon, Jody.
2: Hi, Hi Azania. I'd like you to ask uh, him, please, uh, the naked, naked scientist, I've observed for some time now, out of interest, and I've been very curious, most athletes or people who are active for the duration that they act, for example running or or, or uh, walking fast or playing soccer or whatever, when uh, the activity sort of slows down and their feet slows down or they stop, what the, the natural posture that they assume is the hands on the hips. Mm. <laughs> why is that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Number of reasons. One is waving your arms around helps you to cool down because by exposing your arms to fresh cool air away from your body means that heat which is in your bloodstream being transferred to the skin surface can be more rapidly transferred to the air to cool you off. Also, maintaining that upright posture helps to splint your diaphragm a bit. In other words, it it means that your diaphragm can operate more efficiently, as can your rib cage, to move air in and out as fast as possible to pay back the oxygen debt that you may well have built up. If you do frantic exercise, lots of bursts of of rapid exercise, you could actually be doing what's called building up an oxygen debt where you're using muscle fibres that are very good at producing power and and burning up energy quickly but they do it in the absence of oxygen and they produce chemicals like lactic acid and you get rid of that by over breathing after you finish the exercise so you adopt a posture that helps you to breathe as fast and as efficiently as possible to reset your metabolism and and repay that oxygen debt so i think it's a number of things one of them is it's keeping yourself cool because adopting that posture keeps the air circulating around exposed body parts and that helps to cool you down. If you put your arms by your side, they would be less efficient Mm -hmm. at doing that. And number two is making room for your chest and your diaphragm to work efficiently to pay back the oxygen debt from your exercise.
0: So waving our hands around will cool us off?
1: Yeah, your fingers have a very high surface area to volume ratio. In other words, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of skin for not a lot of core inside the finger. So therefore, the blood flowing through your fingers is able to release an enormous amount of heat energy into the environment. And you actually have a system to open up blood vessels through your digits to use them as mini radiators so that you can dump heat very, very efficiently. And humans are excellent at controlling their body heat and body temperature. And it's one of the ways in which we're able to, historically, our our human ancestors and the bush people across the Kalahari, very, very good at controlling their body temperature, which meant they could outrun many animals and that's how they caught food because Mm -hmm. other animals could run away in short bursts but then they couldn't cope with the heat whereas humans very very good at, at heat control and that enabled them to run down their opposition catch them and then unlucky for the animal but lucky for the person eat them
0: yes yes well thank you jody for that question we know how to survive the hot summer that's likely coming our way chris thank you so much it's been a pleasure thanks for having me that's the naked scientist